You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Hello, greetings, everybody. Hope you're doing okay on this fine afternoon, evening, whenever you're listening to it. Even though the world is falling apart around us, we are here talking about independent music and the creators behind it, whether it's punk, hardcore, indie rock, whatever it is, that whole DIY thing that we just hold so close to our hearts. And this week, I have a another amazing chat with Rob Fish, who uh, played in the bands 108, Resurrection, The Judas Factor. Dude's a lifer. And he just recently released an awesome EP that just came out on Equal Vision Records from a band called Every Scar Has a Story. It's done by a uh, friend. He collaborates with a friend of mine and a future guest of the show, Tom Schlatter from You and I and The Assistant. But the EP is staggering. It is such an amazing uh, piece of music, and it just encapsulates everything that those two dudes have been trying to do in music and uh, continue to do. So I highly recommend you checking it out. And Rob's a real interesting dude has been an open book for 20 plus years in regards to his music and his life. So it was really interesting to, uh, you know, try to find a different angle to speak to him and kind of not hit a lot of the same notes that previous interviews have done. So anyways, more on him in a moment. You can always, always please email the show 100 words podcast at gmail.com. It's uh, always appreciated to have uh, feedback and, um, you know, just uh, reaching out because we all feel weird in this world. And I know that, uh, yeah, reaching out to other people can uh, sometimes really help and make a difference. And also, please share this show uh, as widely as you can, ultimately with the people who need to hear about it. You know, tell your friends, tell other people who like, you know, punk and hardcore, that sort of stuff. Because, uh, yeah, it's just that's the best way to tell people about stuff, you know. It's, uh, you know, you can hear about something from a friend and you'll be like, oh, yeah, I'll check that out immediately. Or you can see something on social media and be like, oh, well, I'll check that in a little bit. But, yeah, word of mouth is how this thing spreads. And I just want the people to hear it that should hear it to hear it. <laughs> Sorry, that's a little circuitous. But I also uh, was so saddened. It was like right after I uh, published the episode last week, 
um, got word that uh, Riley Gale, the vocalist of Power Trip, had passed away at 35 years old, which is just heartbreaking uh, for so many different people. And he affected so many of us. I recently had him on the show, like, you know, maybe a couple months ago. So I highly recommend that you go back and check out that discussion because, uh, yeah, I just think, you know, I had a great time. I connected with him, you know, even though I had never met him before, many mutual friends. And it was, uh, it, it just broke my heart. And I know that many of us are, you know, reeling in the independent music community and people that he touched, but hold those memories close because, uh, you know, that's what all of us have as we pass on and leave this mortal coil to whatever it is in the afterlife. Uh, it's, it's just, it's heartening that you can carry these people with you and they can influence who you are from a day-to-day perspective. So rest in peace, Riley Gale or rest in power, however you want to put it. But, uh, yeah, go listen to that, uh, previous episode. It was, uh, it was a really good, good chat and a pleasure to have him on. So anyways, uh, yeah, let's talk to Rob. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I think my first exposure to, uh, you know, uh, 108 in particular was off the antimatter comp. Um, I was already aware. Okay. Of, yeah, I was aware of the band name, but I just didn't, uh, you know, have much context for the music or what have you and liked it. But then really, really was uh, captured by the uh, the Curse of Instinct documentary, <laughs> which I know, um, you know, was a very uh, interesting project because, you know, it's not like very many bands of that stature we're doing, you know, VHS documentary behind the scenes sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> but it, I mean, it was like, honestly, I think it was like you guys, you know, obviously another state of mind and then like the strife one truth, <laughs> you know, tour documentary or whatever. Um, but it really, for me, it really put the band in proper context. Um, and honestly, in kind of observing that real uh, kind of intense focus that you had, uh, it, not only as a band, but you individually, um, it, it, it struck me uh, as being like, okay, like clearly the focus of the band is something, you know, different than just being like, oh yeah, we're just, you know, friends on tour. It's like, we have a, a, a purpose beyond, you know, just the, the simple function of being a band. Um, sure. I realize this is kind of like a, you know, a big question to start off with here, but, you know, in kind of viewing uh, that particular, uh, you know, juncture of your life and kind of the intensity that was burning from that perspective. Uh, you know, how do you kind of reflect on that? Do you look at yourself as like, oh, I recognize portions of myself in there? Or is it like, you know, wow, that's a, a really different person than what I am now? Yeah, I mean, I'll say that I cannot watch, uh, I can't watch it. Um, you know, I think, a lot of my life, especially, you know, before I was 40, um, had a lot of dark moments, but I, that period of time was probably one of the darker periods where I just, I was struggling with, with everything like emotionally and like, what, like I just, I, I did not know what my place in the world was. And I, you know, I was, you know, to the point where all those anxieties and, and, and you know, my past and like, I was physically sick mentally struggling, emotionally shot. Like it's, so I can't even, I can't even watch a piece of that documentary. And I also think, you know, just, you know, that period of time for the fans was not necessarily reflective of, I guess, the norm of, of how the band functions and how we interact with it. Because, uh, 
you know, there's, there's all these tensions. Like, you know, uh, I, I think a lot of bands, especially, you know, for, for us, you know, once you said, okay, I think we're going to get this done, like, it's really hard to to maintain a sense of self and, and focus on what you're doing. And I think I've seen, you know, for example, I, I don't know the guy well, I don't know the band or the hall, but, you know, it was definitely not a, a, a you know, we're going to part it kind of like they or the sort of celebratory, reflective thing, like, it, it is not. Um, and I think that's primarily because we are all in these very difficult head spaces. I mean, I only really can speak for myself, but like I said, it was probably carried down, you know, one of the darker periods of my life. So I, I remember seeing it, God, not even a year after it was recorded and I couldn't watch it. So, like, now I never could. I just, I wouldn't, I, I, I just, yeah, for whatever reason, I can't, I can't watch it. Sure, totally. Sure. Um, are you on, uh, sorry to interrupt, are you on speaker? Yeah, I don't know why it did that. I'm sorry. It must have switched over midway while I was talking. No, don't, don't worry, don't worry. Yeah, I was just like, I was like, oh, it sounds like he's walking away from the phone, but <laughs> now you're good. No, I, my apologies. <laughs> Dude, don't worry about it. Um. Yeah, but no, I, I can totally get what you're uh, talking about. I mean, yeah, you've you know spoken many times about that moment in your life, you know, that particular juncture being captured uh, of being, you know, uh, really, really difficult to watch, not only for yourself, but, you know, kind of uh, the 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 intended implosion of the band, you know, like the fact it was your, you know, final tour and stuff. And like anytime you're documenting all of those things kind of wrapped up into one, that's a real, real difficult thing to like look back on and be like, oh, those were some pleasant times. Yeah, yeah, it was it was definitely I mean, there was just a lot of, you know, a lot of tension individually, collectively. Um, that, yeah, it's just it's it's hard to if I could have done it over, I wouldn't have done the documentary at all um, just because of where we were. And I think, you know, if we would have chosen to do something like that, we probably would have done it on an earlier tour, but whatever, it's just the way the kind of things landed. And at the time I, you know, at the time I knew I was screwed up, I didn't know how screwed up. Um, so reflecting back on it's definitely not the, uh, the easiest thing to do. Sure. Sure. And, and I mean, to, you know, kind of uh, counter that idea, the fact that it was so, uh, you know, raw and open and honest and the idea that these, you know, independent bands, uh, you know, you just don't get a, a, a unvarnished look at the way that, uh, you know, bands of that level are operating. And I, I think it, you know, it was important for, you know, many people to be able to see like, oh yeah, like this, you know, the interpersonal relationships and all the demands of, you know, what touring is, uh, you know, don't, people just don't speak about it because obviously the idea is like you just get in the van with your friends and that's kind of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I know that you, uh, you know, kind of putting the focus on you, I know you grew up in New Jersey and, you know, you've openly addressed your, you know, hard upbringing, you know, plagued by, you know, suicide, sexual abuse and, you know, a general sense of like, oh, yeah, like, uh, I can't, I can't feel happy. I don't really know where I'm like, uh, trying to find this. Um, I, I imagine that you obviously couldn't like sort of vocalize it at those ages, those younger ages. You just knew that there was that, you know, kind of welled up, uh, you know, depression or anger inside of you. Um, I'm going to guess that, uh, you know, music was kind of the thing that sort of, uh, you know, pulled you, uh, not out, but was able to, you know, 
find some sense of community or was there other things like, you know, did you like play sports or what sort of, you know, I guess flickers of happiness did you find as you were growing up? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I don't know that I knew that I was on an unhappy kid because I don't, you know, I think that that's, you know, that's relative. Right. Um, I, I knew that I felt very separate than everybody else. I kind of just felt like I was always on the outside and, you know, I'm just, I'm a, I'm definitely an introvert, introverted personality, which I think, you know, further kind of exasperates that, um, you know, yeah. I mean, I played sports. I mean, I played football, soccer and, uh, and baseball ran, you know, I did all, I did a, did a lot, uh, as a kid and I, I loved playing the games. I just didn't like everything else surrounding it, like leading up to it, the practices, especially as you get older, like having to go to the gym, stuff like that, like just wasn't my thing, but I definitely connected to music pretty early. Like I, I still remember like my mother, um, you know, listening to someone like Janis Joplin and like crying because she connected with, with, you know, her songs and her pain. And that really like piqued my interest. And so like, yeah, like young, I love the Beatles. I like Janis Joplin. I like all this stuff that kind of my parents liked. And then like very late seventies, early eighties is when I really kind of found my own thing, which was, you know, I got really into hip hop music and I just, I loved it. I loved everything about it because I don't know, it felt like, you know, they were talking more about their life and the things that were happening to them and around them versus, you know, just some thematic song, if you will. Um, And then, you know, obviously that kind of led me to punk rock. And, you know, I think, you know, right away, after I got into to punk, you know, within a couple of years, you know, I had my first band release and I think I was 15 when we recorded our first record and 16 when I went on my first tour. And it definitely was an emotional release for me. Um, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't actually the writer. Like I think I wrote two, maybe three songs at most for release. Uh, I was just kind of the singer and that's, I think I was the singer because I was a little bit crazy and spastic and all over the place. Um, but I, I was not comfortable at all, um, articulating like how I felt in, you know, whether it was my place in the world or, you know, just whatever, like I just, I didn't really write songs in release. Um, it wasn't until I I got into resurrection that I started to write, but regardless of that, yeah, it was, music was, was an emotional outlet for me. Uh, it's a place where I felt I felt a connection. And so even today, like when I think about the records and the bands that mean the most to me, they wrote, they typically aren't necessarily because of their, their prowess, let's say. That doesn't mean that they're not great musicians or weren't great writers, but it was more about kind of where my head was at, my emo- where I was emotionally and what that record did for me during those periods. Sure. Um, so yeah, that's that's where music's always been kind of important to me because, you know, I think it's it's a way that you know even in times where I couldn't articulate my own feelings, I could connect to how someone else articulated it that maybe was braver than me or more sophisticated or older or just could could articulate something that I was I was feeling but not necessarily safe saying. Mm-hmm, sure. Well, and I think it's a, a really powerful uh, picture that you paint in regards to understanding that music can have an emotional impact. And, you know, viewing your mother's reaction to Janis Joplin, uh, you know, is, is something that it, it, most kids don't get an insight to their 
parent being like an emotional being, you know, it's like usually they're just these, you know, uh, authoritative, like kind and loving in certain respects. But then you're just kind of like, oh, yeah, they're these weird people that I live with and tell me what to do. And then when you're like, oh, <laughs> there's there's emotion housed up in this being that, you know, is is overseeing me and then m- being able to draw those connective tissues between like that is what I identify with on a core level is the emotional impact of the thing. Yeah. It's interesting for me. Like, I don't, I don't think I actually ever saw my parents in that light. In other words, like my mother, I always saw like as this heavily emotional person, but not necessarily as an authority figure, if you will. Like my parents always kind of let me be in that respect, which, you know, considering everything that I went through, um, probably wasn't a good thing. Sure. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, like I said, my, my mother, you know, she, she struggled a lot with her mental health, uh, as well as her physical health. You know, she, she passed when I was 18 years old, uh, after being sick for, you know, God, they probably about a five year period where she was heavily sick and it was very obvious, but even sick before that, but she also had a lot of like mental issues, things like that. And so, me, you know, I, it's, it's hard to look back and go how much of, of how much, how much of my ability to pick up on her emotions and distress and all that was because it was just so painfully obvious and how could you not, or how much of it is because that's how I'm, you know, kind of built. And so I naturally kind of focus on those areas, but, you know, I definitely didn't have parents who I, I looked at as like authority figures at all. Like my, my father, I don't think he ever, took that type of stance with me whatsoever. If anything, maybe my mother did a little bit, but she was also, like I said, very emotional, heavy, heavy swings from being happy to being like incredibly angry or depressed. Um, and I think that that, you know, obviously is something I also struggled with, you know, not so much today, but, but early on in life. Sure. Absolutely. No. And I think to your point, the idea of, uh, you know, your your mother being so vulnerable uh, from that perspective was just like that was the only mode that she was able to be in, like you were saying. So it's not like you could view her in a different light of being like, oh, yes, here's this, you know, here's these two duality sides of, of my, uh, you know, parent. It's like, oh, yes, like, you know, she's just always fluctuating between these, uh, you know, emotions. And so that's how I view her. So I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah. And like my, my father was this incredibly like kind, incredibly supportive person in, in a lot, in a lot of ways, but like we didn't necessarily have like an emotional connection with one another, or at least I didn't. But I think the one thing that always really struck me about him was how much he loved my mother, you know, cause again, like she went through periods where she was struggling very, you know, she had this disease lupus, which ultimately ended up taking her life. And at the time they didn't really know what it was. So for years she was just told this is all in your head. Um, and then by the time they figured it out, you know, she was so far impacted by, you know, they were giving her steroids, all these different things where literally her turning over in bed, she could break her wrist, right? She couldn't, she couldn't function anymore. And so you took this emotional person who was very strong-willed and independent and you break them down like that. And so they start to kind of lash out and, you know, the, the amount of, of just instances where I saw her really lash out at my father, but him just, he just loved her and he just, he didn't care. Like he just wanted 
her to feel better and he wanted to support her. And even after she passed, like I'd say a, a huge part of him left with her. And so that always, even if I didn't necessarily feel very connected to him, um, I always really admired, um, you know, how selfless he was in that, in that relationship and how much he loved my mother. Sure. The devotion to it. Cause yeah, like, he, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's no, that's incredible that you were able to, you know, see that, uh, and witness that. Cause yeah, sometimes that doesn't happen until, you know, much later in life. Uh, you know, it, so yeah, that's, that's really cool. Listen, band merch is special. Okay. Even though I have over 300 like band shirts, I actually haven't cataloged them, but I, I can almost guarantee that I have over 300. I still want more. I still buy band merch on a regular basis, and you need to go to rockabilia.com. That is the place that I love to buy a lot of my band merch, and you can use this code PC100Words. That's the word PC or word, letters, PC100Words, and that gets you 15% off your order. They have over half a million items from every band that you could possibly ever imagine, and it's all officially licensed. It ships from the Midwest, an independent business. So not only are you supporting an independent business, but... All of the bands that you buy merch from are getting paid for this, and that is a spectacular thing because, let's be honest, there's a lot of bootlegs out there. If you go on eBay or Amazon, and they're horrific quality, the bands obviously don't see any money from that, and uh, you know that's that's not cool. Bands should see some money from the merch they sell, plain and simple. So go to rockabilia.com, use that code, PC100Words, 15% off your order. Please do it up. It supports the show. It supports that business. Everybody wins. PC 100 words. PC 100 words for 15% off. There you go. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different things that stress us out, right? Like maybe it's something really, really small, like, man, that parking space, it's always taken. And I wish that I would be able to like get it instead of, you know, this person that maybe, you know, is the most courteous and considerate. I know that's something very random, but it's true. We all experience different things throughout the day that trigger us in so many different ways. And there are many times where I have been like, I wish that I had a a spot or a repository for me to, you know, get this stuff off of my chest. Because if you bottle it up, that is no bueno. And then all of a sudden you explode on a coworker or a friend or a family member being like, the parking spot. And people are like, what are you talking about? That is where therapy comes in. And I love working with BetterHelp because I'm a huge advocate for therapy, broadly speaking. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, please give BetterHelp a try. It is so easy because it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire, and then you get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you are not vibing with the therapist for any reason, you can switch it out at no additional charge. Get things off of your chest with BetterHelp. So visit BetterHelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Ray. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. 
Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. We're back with season two of the podcast, which means more opportunities to glow up and become a more responsible and better adult, one life lesson at a time. And let me just tell you, this show is just as much for us as it is for you. So let's figure this stuff out together. This season, we're going to talk about whether or not we're financially and emotionally ready for dog ownership. We're going to figure out the benefits of a high-yield savings account. And what exactly are the duties of being a member of the wedding party? All that, plus so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown Up Stuff. Forgive me, I, I don't know, brothers and sisters, or are you an only child? Um, so my, my parents tried to have kids before me. My mother kept, you know, losing the, the pregnancies. So they started to take in kids like as foster parents, um, kids that came from, you know, families that had typically, you know, alcohol or, or drug abuse issues. Um, so I had fosters, um, that, you know, were mostly there before I came along. When I did come along, I think a few of them lived with us for a few years. I, you know, I had, I had a brother and sister that were definitely much older. Um, I don't think I've seen them since maybe my freshman year of high school, but you know, they were, they were around, I would say probably until I was like four or five. Uh, I had a younger sister for the, or a younger sibling, I guess you call it that lived with us for about a year who I think, you know, from what I remember, they, they found her, you know, with her parents in a bar as like a baby and her, her bottle had like alcohol in it. So like she was 10 months old or 11 months old, my parents got her and they thought the doctors thought that she, you know, had physical and mental, um, like issues. Um, but she, you know, quickly was able to recover and, you know, eventually her parents, I guess, got better and she went back to her parents. So there were, there were, there were in my younger years, there was, I don't really remember much of it. I remember one brother and sister, um, I mostly just remember the stories my parents told me of some of the craziness that happened. Um, but I mean, realistically speaking, you know, by the time I was four or five, you know, there was no other kids around yeah. at that point. They had you know, all gone back to their parents and aside from visits here and there, uh, yeah, I was the only child at that point. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Um, and uh, did you, you know, I mean, through all of the kind of, you know, uh, ups and downs and turmoil that you, you were going through as a, you know, young kiddo, um, you know, did you care about school? Like, were you kind of just like, you know, engaged? No. no. Okay. <laughs> Simple answer. No. <laughs> not, not at all. I think I got suspended for the first time in first grade um, for trying to forge my parents' signatures. Um, that's very inventive at first grade. That's pretty, that's pretty advanced. (laughs) So it's pretty funny. So uh, my first day of school as a kindergartner, I guess, apparently I jumped out of the, the, it was a first floor elementary school, but I jumped out of the window and tried to run home, uh, in first grade. Um, they used to have these desks that you would like lift up and you keep all your papers in there. And I guess for some reason in first grade, I I had a lot of papers that I was not doing well in. So (laughs) At one point, my teacher collected all of them, put them in this big paper bag, and she said, you know, have your parents sign this. So I went home, and I, I remember this. My mother was sick, and she was in bed. And I remember saying, like, trying to convince her, like, oh, I want to see how you write a signature. 
like, what does your signature look like? And I don't know how the hell I tried to articulate that as a first grader. But <laughs> right, right. She did, she did it, and then I just basically took a big pen and wrote Fran and then brought it back to school, and my teacher was like, all right, like, bullshit. Like, bring <laughs> yeah. this home, have both parents sign it, and, of course, this time I wrote Sam and Fran, and uh, I got suspended. And it was kind of funny because years later, I want to say it was – you know, with the first 108 record, or probably no, it was probably the second 108 record, Song Separation, some fanzine or some magazine like reached out to my dad and he still had the paper. They got it like laminated because they thought it was so funny. <laughs> but no, I mean, I got I got suspended for the first time in, in first grade. I mean, I, I, I got in quite a bit of trouble in school. Uh, but God, by the time I hit high school, I mean, I typically was, if I was in school three days a week, that was a lot. Uh, and that's because I figured out the loophole that if they suspend you, they can't count missed assignments, missed tests, or missed days uh, on your record. So I would just get suspended once or twice a week, so I could just go out and skate and hang out with friends, whoever I wanted. Sure, you were. Uh, but they, 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 ca- the they caught in. They, yeah, they they caught on. I, I was asked not to return to the school. I went to a, another school for about a week, uh, where I went. I bounced into two different schools in the course of a week, and then somehow my mother, you know, through just being upset with the school, it got me back into the, the high school I was going to. But then they basically said, from here on out, we won't suspend you. Uh, because they kind of figured, figured they out. They saw what game. you were doing, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, they kind of figured it out and just said, we'll give you in-school suspension. We're not going to give you. So I guess my last year, I didn't get in as much trouble. But no, I, I never had interest in school. Uh, and it's kind of funny, like I, you know, I never went to college and like that until almost two years ago uh, is when I decided to, to go to, go to college, which is kind of funny, but right. Uh, it's, it's worked out well for me. Right. You got a, you got around to uh, applying yourself, Rob. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just funny, like, you know, career wise, like my, I got to a point in my career where, you know, I was interviewing um, for CEO, COO level roles. And I had gotten into one interview process where it was like a seven month process and, um, it was between me and one other person. So at that point, you know, you go through all this psychometric testing and psych evaluations. Cause you know, you know, when you're running a large company, like there's a lot of money invested in what you're doing. They want to make sure you're not completely nuts. And so I had to go to Colorado for like this one hour or sorry, all day, like testing and, and, you know, kind of like discussions to, you know, with just to kind of figure out like my head and figure out, you know, is this type of role going to, am I going to do well in this type of role? How, what are my attributes? How do they line up to typically what they look at in these, in these roles? And at the very end of it, the guy was like, look, he's like, we don't look at your resume until the end. He's like, I looked at it now. I don't see anything on here about college. Like, have you ever gone to college? (laughs) Right. And I was like, no. And he's like, I got to say it's like, and, and I was interviewing for a firm that was owned by a very large organization. Um, in Europe. And he said, look, I can tell you European companies, typically, it, unless you have a master's, they're not even talking to you about a VP level role. What to speak of the CEO role. So he's like, I, I'm shocked that you got this far. He's like, when I look at your testing and I look at everything we did today, I can absolutely see why you're here. But he's like, you, whether you get this job or not, you've got to go get a degree. Like right. it's, it literally can be the one thing that stops you. And that would be a real shame for you not to get an opportunity because you don't have a piece of paper. And so within 48 hours, I enrolled and, you know, a year later, I, I, I graduated with my bachelor's and now I'm midway through my, my master's right now in the final 
you know, 30% of my masters. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's, and it, it's so funny when you get to those, I mean, you know, I think most people that come from our world of, you know, the DIY punk and hardcore scene, it, you know, you don't, <laughs> we obviously view the world differently. And that whole piece of paper scenario where I was just like, well, if I have these like 20 years of, you know, doing the work or, you know, putting together shows or whatever, all of these like things that you really technically can't put on your resume, it's like, well, I still know how to do all of it. But yeah, I guess I do need that piece of paper. <laughs> Well, and that was the funny thing about doing my bachelor's. Like it took me less than a year and it's not because I'm uber smart. I'm just, I'm not right. But I had 20 years in the business world. So doing a business administration degree, you know, with my resume and my background, like I didn't need to read, you know, five books to figure out, okay, well, what is, you know, what is organizational psychology and how do you write a mission, vision, and values? And how does that parlay into, the tactics of how you operate a company. Like I knew all that I've gone through it. I've experienced it multiple companies. So I was able to breeze through it because not because I'm smart, but because I just have a lot of experience. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Masters is a a little different. It's a little different. Uh, (laughs) Sure. I, I, you know, I'm in my third quarter. Um, like I said, I have about a class and a half to go before my thesis. Um, but it's definitely been a, a more complicated, um, but also, uh, you know, my, my job's more complicated now, so it's, it's made that experience interesting, but no, I, to put it, put it bluntly, I've never cared for school. I like to learn, but I don't know. I'm a, I'm a kinetic learner. I don't learn well in, in a classroom setting. I learn well in physically and mentally doing something. Sure. Right. The, the learn through doing. Yes. Yeah, yes, Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I know that, uh, you're, uh, you know, like you said, you were connected to music and you kind of, you know, had that uh, emotional through line as you were, you know, exploring and kind of figuring out what your tastes were and stuff like that. And I know that, uh, you know, you're, you were introduced to black flag via a friend in like shop class. Um, what, you know, uh, I mean, I know it's impossible to kind of articulate, uh, what, sort of you know stood out to you at that time you just kind of like what you like because it's like oh wow like this is you know uh, titillating exciting or whatever um you know what uh you know what maybe you know kind of like jumped out at you was it the sort of aggression was it just you know you like the way that it sounded um again for me music always was about the uh, does it does it do something to me emotionally do i find some type of emotional connection and like I said, for early hip hop, like Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five, and you listen to the message. I did not grow up in that setting, but being able to hear this person talk about the reality around them and, and, and sense the emotion, the desperation, you know, all those things really drew me. With Black Flag, it was, you know, he gave me a, a tape and it was, you know, everything went black. So, you know, you've, you've got a few of the same songs by, by three different singers. And the one that really hit me was Ron Reyes. Um, and I, I can absolutely tell you, I could still listen to those songs and feel the same thing, which was there was this desperation in his voice, this emotional desperation that just like, that was it. And that's, that's always my connection. Like I said earlier, like I, it was funny, like I did a thing the other day for, um, for a, a magazine where they asked me about like my, f- you know, five heaviest records that shaped me or another one where they said, Hey, name 10 records you couldn't live without. And it's funny. Like, I don't, I don't, you know, for me, it's when I name those types of records, it's always like, it always goes back to the emotion where I was at emotionally at the time. And 
how that record kind of whatever, like kind of played into where I was at emotionally when I heard it and how I, I connected to it. So I think that was it for black flag. It was, you know, whether it was hip hop or punk rock, it was, I, I knew that I felt like an outsider. I knew that I had this sense of isolation and desperation. So whenever I heard music that reflected that, I was drawn to it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that was your uh, kind of North star. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, as you started to really get consumed by, you know, independent music and like you said, you know, you played and release and like all of that, uh, you know, really started to kind of capture who you were and your attention, you know, sometimes there's that, uh, strife within the context of the home where your parents are just like, dude, what the, he- what the heck is Rob bringing home? Like, what is this? Like, you know, he's already, you know, <laughs> whatever, getting suspended from school all the time. And then he's into this weird music. Um, you know, did your parents basically just kind of like, well, I, I, you know, take the same sort of stance where it's just like, well, there's only so much that we can do. He's going to be off doing his own thing. Um, you know, how did that kind of no, interaction? I mean, no, I mean, they were, they were always supportive in that way. I mean, I, I remember as a, as a 16 year old being like, Hey, I'm going to go on a tour around the u.s <laughs> right like this is there were no cell phones we didn't have agents like there's nothing and they're like okay yeah just call us every couple of days like and when bands came through like if i was like hey this band's coming i want them to stay my parents were like yeah whatever like they just they they were it's weird like they were they were very supportive in that way they never got involved they never came my dad came to a show i guess later but it's not like they ever wanted to go to shows or like, Oh, let me hear what you're doing. Like nothing like that. Like, it's just, that wasn't our relationship. Um, but if I ever said like, Hey, I want the band to practice here. They were like, oh, okay, whatever. Like, Hey, this band's coming. Can they, can they, you know, want them to stay at our house? Yeah. Okay. Like they were in that way, they were always really good. So no, I mean, I think they were just happy that I was applying myself to something. Um, and you know, not at least on the surface that they could see not getting in as much trouble. Right. Yeah. That it's like, okay, we're glad that he actually found something, uh, you know, productive to do as opposed to, you know, all of the, uh, other things that you were or were not doing. Yeah. And like, uh, I mean, even on a tour, the first tour in 1989, like I came home with this kid, Frankie, who was a Cleveland kid who came from a really fucked up family. And somehow he hooked up with the grilled biscuits and, 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 and was, was on their tour out to California and then he jumped in a van with, with Upfront and made it down to Florida. And then we, we met up at Upfront in Florida. And I met this kid. And at the end of the tour, like, he had nowhere to go. My parents were like, yeah, if you, you know. Like, my parents just let him live in our house for a little while. And then he moved into a Krishna temple. And then that went sideways. And so then he moved back into our house. And I wasn't really living there at that point, you know, because I had, you know, I, I was spending time at the Krishna temple. And anyway, all this crazy stuff happened. Um, but in that way they were, they were always really cool. Like, you know, I, I think again, like my parents, there was, there was some punk rock when they were young or it's, I'll say more my mother, but she came from this really, you know, rough upbringing. And she, she went through a lot of, of heavy, heavy things. And so even though we never talked about me, we never, or never talked about the things I was going through or how I was feeling, I think she could sense that. And so I think, Anytime she could, you know, whether it was me bringing someone home or a band or something like that, like she was, 
she was never going to stand in the way of that because I think she was just happy to see that I was navigating through this stuff and these people, these things helped me. Sure, absolutely. She says, even though I may not understand it, it, it is providing some comfort and solace for Rob as he's, you know, figuring out the world. That, that's what I'm assuming, right? We never yeah. talk like that, um, but that's, that's how, how I kind of assume it. Yeah. Is that I think, you know, she, I think my father was completely clueless to, I mean, when I told him about my abuse much later in life, he was completely dumbfounded. He had literally no idea. I think my mother, you know, one, I know she didn't know because I had a distinct conversation with her about it. But even before that, I think she all along could see a lot of herself in me, which, you know, was, was, I guess, partly good, but also, you know, not, not so great. Sure. Sure. Um, and so, you know, as you started to, you know, navigate playing in these bands and, you know, like you said, there wasn't, you know, a ton, uh, of your own, uh, influence in regards to, you know, the, the first bands you were playing in, and it wasn't until resurrection where you could kind of, you know, really express yourself. Um, you know, both that and 108, like all things considered were very short projects, you know, <laughs> like, you know, two to three years, you know, kind of at, at the most, uh, but, you know, clearly burned very, very, very brightly. Like you guys, you know, did everything you possibly could to, you know, get yourselves out there and put out records and be prolific. Um, do you feel like because of that kind of intensity, it caused the, you know, I guess the, the lifespan of the bands to be shorter or is that just obviously too impossible to kind of reflect on? You know, I don't, I, I, I think back then, um, I don't know that it was a short time span. Like I think, I think back then if a punk band stayed around for three years and, and did a few records and a tour, that was like, that was a lot. That's I true. Mean, yeah. 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 <laughs> Take away like the black flags and the bad brains. Like in most respects that, that seemed like a, a lot. Um, you know, I mean, again, like there was no, you know, if there was a record label, it was literally a kid doing it out of his, out of his parents' garage. Right. Like it just, it wasn't a business like it is, or like it even was in the in the you know later '90s, where it really started to take on a more sophisticated, you know, contemporary. You know, it, it started to kind of mirror the settings that a normal band would be in, you know, outside of punk rock. Um, so, uh, I mean, to, I think you know, think about those ages, like the shit that, that how 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 much you evolved as a person between the ages of you know, let's say 13 or 12 and, and 25 is like, it's radical. So I think it's, it would be pretty rare to be able to be in a band in that time period where you can grow together. Because I mean, I, I can say like the release guys, like in the God, two and a half years, I guess, I don't even know how long we were a band, I guess two and a half years we had all changed so radically from day one do that. And that's because that's what you do at the age of, of 15 to 17. Um, sure. you, you do typically have this pretty big metamorphosis, especially in the punk scene, because it is typically kids who come from more disconnected or just, I don't know, trouble's the right word, but turbulent families. Um, so I think it was actually quite, quite normal. Like I never felt like, Oh, we're pre- I mean, I felt like I was in 108 forever uh, at that time. At that yeah. time, like it felt, you know, and it was funny because we were not not your typical band in that, you know, we didn't have like a practice space. Like 
it was, I was talking to someone about making this record and they're like, Oh, was it weird to like, you know, never be in a room together and write a record? I'm like, that's the way it's been for me in bands since 1992. Right. Like I haven't been in a band that practiced like in a spot and lived by each other and did these, like that, that, that stopped for me in 1992. So this wasn't weird at all. Like this is actually kind of what I'm used to at this point. Right. Right. No, you, and you, you know, you make a very good point in regards to even though, you know, from a time span perspective, it's not, you know, long, you know, if you look compared to, you know, other music styles or whatever. But, you know, when you do have a band that puts out more than like, a, you know, a hardcore band that puts out more than two LPs, that's a lot, <laughs> you know. And so, yeah, that's that, that's definitely something that needs to be considered. Well, and even yeah. And even more than that, like if you think about how much you emotionally and intellectually evolve between the ages of, of let's just say, you know, I'll make it even shorter window, 14 to 20. Like that, that would be reflective of the type of evolution and change that an adult has over a 20 year period, 25 year period. Like just so much of your worldview is being changed and shaped and influenced then that it's, you know, I feel like being in a band for two years at the age of 16, like being in a band, for 10 years in your, in your thirties, because that's just how radically everything in your world is shifting and changing. Yeah, absolutely. And especially too, when you're getting introduced to all these, you know, uh, radical left of center ideas within the context of punk and hardcore, you know, th- there's even more tumult that's going on with that as yep. well. So yeah, cause you're, you know, you're trying to tear down the system. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. You're trying to, and you, and you honestly don't even really, aren't really aware what the hell the system is. You just know that it sucks. Totally. Right. You know, so it's, it's such a funny, funny thing. It is. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, when you kind of look back at that too, I think the most important, you know, thing that uh, is lasting is the fact that you are offered different perspectives, you know, and you know, whether or not you've torn down the system is, you know, irrelevant. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's relevant, but you know, not, not in the grand scheme totally, of things. Yeah. yeah. But like you, you just have, you're offered up a different perspective where you hopefully will have, more empathy for others uh, around you that don't have a similar upbringing or a similar background. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I think that's one thing that I've always been very like thankful of um, is that, you know, being in, in the punk rock scene, like you have the opportunity to interact with people, you know, from all different like walks of life. And, you know, I mean, again, like at, you know, by the age of 24, I had been to, you know, 20 plus countries like most people don't get that opportunity in a lifetime. So you just get the ability to see things, but it's funny. Like I kind of think about it. There's this really funny meme that I remember. Um, and it was a, it was a meme about the dead Kennedys. And it was like, here's what you thought about the dead Kennedys at 15, right? Like, Hey, they're, they're, they seem like they're right about stuff. And then at 20, you're like, Oh, well, you know, it's way more complex. And at 20, you know, 25 or 20, whatever the hell it was. Right. You're like, okay, man, this is, there's these large systemic issues. And then by the time you hit like your mid thirties, you're like, God damn it. The dead Kennedys are right about everything. Um, that's, <laughs> totally. that's like kind of what I feel about like the punk rock scene in a lot of ways is that, you know, I, the way that I can relate to punk rock and, and what I'll call like kind of like pillars of, you know, being individualistic and, and thinking about, you know, the impact to the, you know, the, the, the greater community or to the world, like it's much more real to me now as a, as a father of, of two grown adult children 
than it was for me at 15. Like at 15, I identified with it. I was drawn to it. Um, but at the age of 40, I think I'm 48 now, 48. Um, it's, it's way more real to me in a lot of ways. And, you know, you're, you're constantly being confronted with, you know, your ideals versus your world. And how do you, how do you get the two to align as much as possible? Mm-hmm. And how do you stay true to those things? Yeah, absolutely. And that I think to your point too, the fact that you have a conscious thought about it is, you know, the magic of uh, what it is that we've been exposed to because so many people don't even think about like don't even go as far as thinking about how those things, uh, you know, com- combine with one another. So, I, I think it's, you know, yeah. it's really cool. Um, yeah, absolutely. The, uh, you know, uh, more so probably with, you know, 108, you're probably with Resurrection a little bit as well. Uh, You know, you're starting to get paid for shows and like the business implications of the band, uh, you know, start to be real. I mean, and I use the word business in air quotes because it's not like, you know, again, your uh, vision for these things was not like, oh, I'm going to make a living off being in a, you know, rock and roll band. (laughs) But uh, yeah. You know, how, how did you always kind of, or how did you react to the, you know, business side of things as things got quote unquote more serious? Was it something that you kind of just were like, well, we, you know, need to do this in order to, you know, put gas in the tank and all that other stuff, uh, but I don't really like interacting with it? Uh, or how, how did you kind of navigate those things as they started to come real? I don't know that we ever really had to navigate that. Um, just because, I mean, we, I, I mean, God, I, I think maybe at most 108 back then was like, oh, you know, we like even when we were at our largest, like, oh, if we can get 350 bucks for the show, like that's cool. Okay. Like we just, we never, we never thought about it in that way. Um, and when it came time for me to go like, holy crap, like I'm going to have a kid, I'm going to do this stuff. Like I didn't think about music. I thought, okay, I need to get a job. Like I always wanted music to be, that ability to, to get something out. Um, I did not want, I I didn't want, nor was I in, you know, like, look, I I fucking scream in a band. Like I'm not an artist. I'm not this really talented guy. I I was never going to be on a major label. Like I never had that, you know, one, I I never, I never fancied like, Ooh, that's what I want. And two, I never even, I, I knew that I was not, ever going to have that chance because just the type of music I play and the, the, you know, the talent that I have, I knew that that was never going to be a real thing. Um, and so I was always able to keep music to be more of a, you know, not have to worry about it in that sense. Um, you know, I, I think for me, like, it's funny, like when you're supposed to be the singer of the band, like you're supposed to love like the interactions and being up front. And that just wasn't me like on tour, I would, fucking hide in the van or wander around by myself because I just, even, even at a show where I knew hundreds of people came to see my band play, I never felt included in a way. I don't know if that makes sense, but I still felt like weird and like outside of it in a way. Um, and so I was always happy for, you know, Vic to do interviews and, and do those things. Cause I just, I didn't really want to do them um, because I just, I just felt so awkward. Um, so I never, I, I, you know, I never had, because of all that, I never looked and went, Ooh, let me try to make a run at a career in music. Let me try to, you know, of course we needed to make enough money to get from city to city and hopefully, 
you know, afford bread and peanut butter so he could have something to eat. But that was literally the height of, of my ambition from a musical standpoint. Right, right. It was very, you know, hand to mouth. <laughs> yeah, it was, and it was not, you know, I'm not going to say it was like some like ethical thing of like, oh, we will only play shows for five. Like, I just, I don't know. I never thought about it as a business. I knew that I, even if I wanted to think about it as business, that I was not talented enough to, to go down that route. So I just never bothered with it. Sure. Like it was just always something that, yeah, it had to kind of, like I had to be able to get from point A to point B and I had to be able to get food in my stomach. But outside of that, I don't think I ever had much of a, of a mind from that perspective of like, Hey, let's make money. Let's make, I mean, I was going on tour, you know, most of the year yet having an apartment in Manhattan or Brooklyn, like it made no sense. Right. Um, but it's also cause I didn't think I didn't, wasn't thinking about it that way. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, a lot of times too, you, you know, you were basically like touring for, you know, an extended period of time and then you would come home and, you know, work at your local bagel shop or whatever. Like, you know, it was yeah. like, oh yeah, like that's what you do. And like, I'm going to work these transient jobs because I'll just, you know, cause I got to quit it in like, you know, six weeks when I go on tour again. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, I thought I think at that point, I also thought I, I'm not smart enough for anything else. So why not? But what I didn't realize is that I had developed like a work ethic and a determination that most people don't have. And so when I finally, like, it was funny, like, I remember I got done doing 108 and, and I worked at this like publishing company for a while. And, you know, that had kind of run its course and it was like, well, fuck, like, where am I going to work? And, and a friend of mine, you know, everybody in the scene worked for Kinko's at one time, yeah. especially back then. Of course. Yeah, everybody, yeah. every band, every promoter, every fanzine. And so of course a bunch of people were like, Hey, come work at Kinko's. And, so someone hooked me up with someone and I got a job there. But what I realized right away is that I'm surrounded by all these people who are smarter than me, um, but they don't really have a very strong work ethic and they're, they're not, they're not innovative. Like they, they will, they will follow and execute on a path that someone else tells them, this is what you need to do where I was, you know, cause of punk rock and having to learn how to book a tour on the, at the age of, you know, 16 using maximum rock and roll, like, you, you had to, you had to you know, have a work ethic and determination and, and not be afraid of things. And so right away, you know, probably within a year of starting working there, I realized, shit, I might not be as smart as them and I might not have the education and background that they have, but I've got a work ethic. I've got a discipline and I've got this ability to, to take a, a chance on something strategically that these people don't have the balls to do. They don't have it in them. And I really just started to lean in on that. And my career like took off from there. Um, and that's also something that I'm like, you know, people, you know, now in my role, like, you know, Hey, what were some of the most influential things leading up to you now, you know, running a company punk rock, man. Like it taught me yeah. so much. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it- Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. 
Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. We're back with season two of the podcast, which means more opportunities to glow up and become a more responsible and better adult, one life lesson at a time. And let me just tell you, this show is just as much for us as it is for you. So let's figure this stuff out together. This season, we're going to talk about whether or not we're financially and emotionally ready for dog ownership. We're going to figure out the benefits of a high-yield savings account. And what exactly are the duties of being a member of the wedding party? All that, plus so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown Up Stuff. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Oh. Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. It's no, it's beautiful. It's beautiful when you are able to, you know, I mean, you've heard these speeches just as much as I have. It shows where you take whatever the learnings that you, uh, you know, gain through the records, you know, the music, the fanzines, everything else. And then you apply it to the quote unquote real world, you know, the, the civilians. <laughs> and when you start to see how the world is viewed differently through people who have been impacted by what we've been impacted by, uh, it starts to really take hold and you start to see the differences, you know, some, some some good, some bad of the way that people navigate the world. But to your point uh, of the idea that it's just like, oh yeah, like, you know, you didn't care about like, you cared about your job description, but it wasn't like that was limiting you. You were just like, oh, I can probably solve that problem over there. Cause I know how to do this like element of it or whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I, I knew how to figure out like, here's what people aren't, here's what they need. Here's about what we do today that they're not happy about. How do I, how do I eliminate that pain point while still delivering what they need? And I, and the other thing too is like uh, that I really realized in, in a very positive way is that you can be really successful in business without fucking people over. Like you really don't need to. Like, is it easier to get money to your bottom line if you if you treat people like commodities and you, you, you depersonalize? Absolutely. In the short term, it absolutely works. But in the long term, when you're trying to build an organization or a brand, you're only as good as your people allow you to be. And so it's been pretty cool for me to say like, Hey, when I get this shot, I am going to lead as I always thought someone should lead a company. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, but I believe it can. And, and that's, that's what's been really kind of cool for me is to see that you can run a company and you could be successful without screwing people over, you know, by, by thinking about your people and realizing that, if you do right by them, they'll do right by your customers, and you've got that perfect circle. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's really difficult to kind of describe uh, at this point uh, in now the you know the impact that Hari Krishna had in the hardcore scene now because you know 
frankly, nothing else exists like that now. You know, I mean, I guess you could, you know, argue whatever Christian hardcore in the late nineties, early two thousands, but like, you know, it, it's so, uh, the, the zeitgeist that was captured in the mid nineties with that is something that's so, um, you know, interesting and, you know, unduplicated in my opinion. Um, you know, as you know, bands like, you know, 108 and shelter and you guys were, you know, making an impact, uh, not only within the hardcore scene, but, you know, bringing people who had never been even remotely interested in the hardcore scene into it, you know, did, uh, you know, did you feel, uh, I guess, uh, you know, and this maybe is too grand of a term, but like, did you feel kind of accomplished with that? Uh, was that exciting, uh, you know, to feel like you were kind of at the center of something or was that something that you just didn't have a perspective of because you were in the middle of it? Not really. Uh, and, and this is where like 108 was really interesting. I, I understand why people put us in shelter in the same sentence, right? Because yeah. you shared some members, same time frame. But I think when you looked at kind of like foundationally what we were both trying to do, it was very, very different. Um, you know, for me, and, and again, like this is, you know, history with 108 was, you know, hey, like I was playing a show at Resurrection with like Lifetime, Worlds Collide, No Escape, Chuck Treese in Atlantic City. And Vic shows up with Worlds Collide and this guy, Jay, that I knew that was from Virginia. And it's like, hey, we have this new band, One Away, we're going to play a few songs. And they played a few songs. And the next day, like Vic called me up and said, hey, we kicked the singer out. We want you to sing. I want you to sing. Like, I loved watching you in Resurrection. Like, And him and I lived together a little bit in the temple. So we kind of knew that that, that we both um, the tensions that we had with, with ISKCON or the Hare Krishna movement or whatever, we, we had similar kind of pain points, if you will. And so he was like, Hey, come, come and be in one away. And so, you know, a few weeks later I go down to Maryland. Um, I, I had never even really heard one away, uh, but went and recorded a few of the songs on the record. And then I got on, it was funny. Like we got done with the studio and I was supposed to stay for, I think a couple days and um, this this Swami gets on, the, you know, is ca- calls the the room we're staying in, and I pick up the phone, and and I knew him a little bit, but right away he's like, oh, so you're gonna move into the temple and you're gonna shave your head, and I was like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? Like I had already lived in the temple, I'd never, you know, I knew that I wasn't a, a, a brahmachari or a monk, and I knew that, you know, that while there were certain aspects of Krishna consciousness that that were that aligned to who I was, or at least what I, what I wanted. There were also aspects that, that really didn't. And so I ended up quitting the band and just saying to myself, like, I can't do this. And then, you know, I, whatever, I go on a tour at resurrection and lifetime. And afterwards, 108 was supposed to go out and do a bunch of shows. And, you know, Norm, who is my, you know, has been one of my best friends for the last 30 years. Um, you know, he was going to be in one away. He's like, all right, we're going to do it together. And I was like, okay, cool. And then the eve before the first show, I was like, I had a, you know, it's like, fuck, I don't want to, like, I want to play with Vic and Norm. And I like these songs and I, I like how Vic thinks about these things, but I don't, the rest of it was so uncomfortable to me that I just said, fuck it, I'm not going to do it. I just didn't show up to the show. And then, you know, I, I ended up showing up to like the third show, watching them and just thinking to myself, God, on one hand, I really wish I would have did it. And on the other hand, I'm really glad I didn't. And anyway, a few, you know, the rest of the year passes, and then it was early uh, 1993, and you know, Vic hit me up and just said, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do one away, and we're gonna go on tour, and I want you to sing." 
And him and I just really talk through all the things about, you know, Hare Krishna and what, how would 108 play into that dynamic? Like we walked through everything that I was uncomfortable with, everything he was uncomfortable with. And what we found was while we're, we're very different personalities then, we're very different personalities now that we both had a similar thing, which is there were certain aspects of organized religion and of the Hare Krishna specifically that we took issue with, but we could express that collectively. There was nothing wrong with that. And if people, you know, his whole take, which really drew me in was if they don't like it, fuck them. And I was like, okay, like if that's really like your take on this and that's how you want to approach it, like I'm in. And that's kind of how it happened. So for me, like 108 was never about let's get kids to come to the temple. Let's get kids to do this. Let's you know, get them to, you know, it was more of like, I mean, like when I sang 108 songs, especially then, the heavy content to them, I wasn't singing it looking at the crowd going, yeah, you guys got to fucking get this. I was singing it because I'm like, I need to get this. Like, I need to see the role that sexuality is playing in my life and how destructive it is. I need to think and, and examine myself and my, you know, selfishness and the things that drive me. Like, it was much more of an internal thing than it was, you know, being like, for example, being in a vegan band that goes out and preaches veganism, right? You like, typically, if you're that person, and I've been that person, like, yeah, like, hey, I'm, I'm, I believe in a plant-based diet, vegan diet. Here's why. Here's why you should do this. 108 and, and the Krishna part was different for me in that it was as much me preaching to myself and trying to get myself to live my life in a different manner than it was trying to influence other people. And so I think in that way, it was different. Now, Vic was, it, Vic was and is a teacher. That's what he loves to do. He loves to teach people things. So I think for him, there was a little bit more, you know, of that dynamic of bring people in, let's get into the temple. I can speak to them. You know, I can teach them the Bhagavad Gita where for me, it, it, it really wasn't like that. Sure. Um, but I think him and I both aligned in that, like there's some really great aspects of the philosophy and of the, of, you know, Kirtan and meditation, but there's also these things that we both think are kind of fucked up and we don't agree with. And if that means that, you know, like my whole take was, it's me thinking that men have the right to love each other and have a relationship or me thinking that a woman has a right to choose or me thinking all these different things. If that's a problem for the Hare Krishnas then fuck them when it comes to this, like I don't have to be their pure representative. And I think we all see that now in our, in our own lives, right? How many people will say, well, I'm a Democrat, but right. It's like this idea of like, you might register as a Democrat, but you might think most of the, the platform or big portion of the platform is bullshit but you do it for like these logistical reasons. And I think it was sort of like that for me. Like I was drawn to Hare Krishna because I needed to understand as a kid, why the fuck would like, would, would a relative and these, and another adult, like, why would they abuse me? Why would they do this to me? And I couldn't function. I couldn't get my head around it. And so an idea like karma really like it, it just helped navigate that and it's funny like i look back and people used to always say oh well you know people that are into religion it's because they're scared it's because they're not strong enough yeah you're fucking right there's nothing wrong with that like i would not be here today if it wasn't for that 
And so I, you know, I very early on, I realized that there's never going to be anything that you look at in totality and say, yes, I align with that. I align with every aspect of it strategically, tactically, all this stuff. What I realized is you, you, you're going to find in, in, in one book, you could find 15 beautiful things and 30 horrific things. It's okay to hold on to the 15 beautiful things, but, but toss away the 30 shitty things. Sure. And so I, I think that's always kind of stuck with me too. And, you know, I think, you know, Vic had a similar kind of mindset. Like back then he was writing these different articles about feminism and, and things like that, which in like the ISKCON church or whatever, like it was considered almost blasphemy, but it had a philosophical point and emphasis and background to it. And so like, I, again, like for whatever reason, like I just felt like because of, of how Vic is doing this and how he will speak out on things, like we can be comfortable until we're not. And so that's, that's how that worked. But it was, it was definitely a very different feeling than shelter. Yeah. You know, we didn't, you know, we didn't bring, you know, people in to do kirtans and bring feasts and, and sell books. Like I remember the first time we went to Europe, like, fuck man, every temple was like welcoming us to stay there. And then we get to the show and they'd be like, Oh, we're going to do a kirtan. We're going to do a book table and do this. And we're like, no, you're not going to do any of that. Right. You're like, Nope. At they, all. Period. Yeah. yeah. And they'd be like, what do you mean? And it's like, no, like this is like, this isn't you. Like you don't belong here. And, you know, we're not doing this to give you an opportunity to like, you know, build your, you know, your, your head count at your Sunday feast. Like, and if you want to let us stay there and you want to give us some food and you want to say hi, like, that's cool. But if you want to use this as your platform for this, like, fuck, no, you're not going to do that. Yeah. The line line is strong. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think just that was one of the, the primary differences um, but you know, it's funny, like we spent five months on the road with shelter, uh, on our first tour in 1993. And, you know, I'm thankful that they brought us out. I mean, <laughs> a, a kind of funny story, like at, at one point at the very, very end of the tour, shelter was working on their, their next record and songs for the next record. And we were getting ready to go and record songs of separation. So like, you know, in sound check, stuff like that, like we would all just be playing like newer stuff. And, Every, you know, I, I traveled primarily in, in the van with most of Shelter and 108. We had a van, two vans and a bus on this tour. But most of the van members in, in 108 and Shelter traveled in this one van. I, I did too. And I would always stay up in this little loft and I'd always have headphones on. And so anyway, like it's coming towards the end of the tour. And, you know, someone had a boom box on them or whatever. And they would record stuff and during the sound checks to listen back to and stuff like that. Because again, we were, we were working on writing a record. And Shelter, you know, at one point, Purcell came up to me, and I want to say this is like the second to last or third to last day of the tour. And he came over and he's like, hey, you know, I, I, I recorded this stuff. I want to listen to it. Can I borrow your, can I borrow your tape player? Because that's what everybody had. Like, there wasn't a CD player. I guess there were CD players back then, but they were probably pretty new. And he's like, he saw me with headphones on the whole tour. So he's like, can I borrow your, your tape player? I want to listen to this. And I was like, I don't have a tape player. And he's like, what do you, what do you mean? I was like, I, I don't have one. He goes, well, what the, like, what have you been listening to every day? Like every day you have headphones on. And I was like, yeah, that's just so no one talks to me. And I remember like Purcell, like, you know, at that time, like it's, it was a really nice guy. And, but he was like, dude, that's fucked up. Like you've been wearing headphones so no one would talk to you. 
but that's kind of where I was in a head spot. Like I just, you know, like I, in, in ways I enjoyed seeing what was going on around me in ways it was really helpful to me, but I just, you know, I felt very separated from it. Um, sure. And kind of out of place with it. Yeah, no, no, I totally get that. I mean, yeah, you're you're watching these these two kind of mission statements kind of exist uh, alongside each other with like some commonalities. But yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying, and I appreciate you you know articulating it like that because, um, yeah, those are definitely two different uh, approaches <laughs> that, of what you guys were but doing. Yeah, but but it, but yeah, it was it was it was you know it was just it always stuck me how how funny it was like he was like almost offended that thing for five months. I wore headphones and I wasn't actually listening to anything. <laughs> right. But yeah. it was like that, that's the kind of person like I just like, you know, like norm or daily on that tour or Vic, like those are the only guys I really talked to, you know, maybe a few of the people that were traveling with the bands, but in terms of like the bands themselves, the individuals like, you know, Kate, obviously Vic, so like the one eight guys I would talk to the shelter guys. I didn't really, you know, I mean, we would talk to each other, but, I was definitely in a very different headspace. Sure, sure. Um, two last things I want to hit on before I let you go was the, um, you know, the when you were, you know, like you said, kind of making the transition out of, you know, the touring lifestyle and, you know, like you said, kind of starting to, you know, build your career and stuff like that. Um, you know, there, uh, from the way that you described it, like clearly there was no like, you know, set direction that you were going on. It was just kind of like, oh, I guess I'll try this out. And, and now that you've been able to, you know, uh, build a successful career for yourself and, uh, you know, being a father and a husband and uh, all of this, this stuff that, you know, most quote unquote normal people experience, you know, maybe at an earlier age or whatever than you, um, you know, it, it, does it, does it feel interesting to kind of have these, uh, two dual worlds that exist because, you know, clearly you're still active in music. Um, and then, you know, you have this like, oh, I'm, you know, a professional business person as well. And then, you know, usually those worlds don't kind of coincide. Um, you know, are people kind of surprised when they like, you know, Google you and it's just like, oh wait, Rob, what is this Rob? Like, why are you yelling in a band? This is weird. Yeah. I mean, there definitely is that. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, again, I'm, I'm pretty open about it. Like I don't, you know, like I, if people in, in that side of my world say, Hey, what's the name of your band? I'm always like, you know what? You could figure that yourself. Like I'm not like, it's, you're it's, not going to promote it. Yeah. Here's a flyer to the show. Yeah. Like it's just kind of weird, but at the same time, like it is what it is. Like I'm not ashamed of anything I've done. And you know, I, I might not love every, every record I've made. I might not love, you know, every video clip of everything I've ever said, but I stand by all of it. Um, and so it, you know, it, it, I mean, it's funny, like I, I definitely, you know, over the years have like bumped into someone where, you know, in the professional world where like a little while in, they're like, wait a minute, you're that dude from that band. Like, or like people that, that had some, some experience or some, some time in the punk scene, all of a sudden connect the dots that like, wait a minute, this guy is, is, is the same as that guy. And I even remember like, God, it was, you know, whatever it was four years ago when I, I did those songs with um, Turning Point at, um, at uh, This Is Hardcore. And, um, you know, I, I remember the day after the show, I got on the airplane and when I got off, I had like 400 like texts and calls and messages because, you know, what I said, like kind of blew up on the internet and half of it was, you know, death threats and half of it was, that was fucking awesome. And it was, it was just like really weird. And then, you know, going into work and, and all of a sudden realizing like, Oh, the CEO of my company has watched this, you know, this, you know, my, my boss, the COO has, has watched this. Um, but I, you know, I, 
I don't feel ashamed about any of it. Like I, you know, was that my most articulate moment? Absolutely not. My God. Like, I can't even watch that. Sure. Right? But sure. The sen- the sentiment behind it, what I was feeling and, and what I said, I absolutely will stand behind it every day. So, I mean, it definitely can be weird to kind of juggle the two worlds. Um, but I'm also really comfortable in both of them. Like it doesn't, you know, I don't feel any conflict there. Sure. Sure. Was that a, uh, I have to imagine that was a, a slightly uncomfortable conversation. Like when you got brought in to be like, Hey Rob, let's, uh, let's talk about this. <laughs> it, you know, it really wasn't. I mean, again, because like, I'm not, it's not like I walk around the corporate world. I'm like, look, I'm covered in tattoos and right. I'm a pretty open guy. So it's not right. like it's, there's nothing about it that makes a surprise them, but they were just like, okay, like, holy crap, like, what was that about? And I kind of explained it and they're like, oh, okay. Like, I don't know, like, I'm not going to be apologetic about it. And I, and I know, like, when I, you know, when, when I was being considered for the role I'm in now, like, they're all, you know, like, look, I, if, if I'm going to run an organization, they're all going to do research. Like, they're all going to go and figure out everything about your life. And, you know, like, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, are there certain, aspects that like, God, I, I wish I would have done this differently. Absolutely. Um, but you know, in, in general, overall, I'm absolutely proud of the stuff I've done and it's made me who I, who I am. And if someone isn't comfortable with that and they don't want me to, to work with them or for them or whatever, because of that, like that's their problem. not mine. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And you wouldn't want to work with them anyways, if that was like, oh yeah, like, you know, we, we don't like it because you said these, these things that, you know, we don't agree with. It's like, okay, well, that's probably not a good fit. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and I'll say like, no one said that, right. Like, which was cool too. Like, you know, I, you know, so anyway, I've, I guess I've been lucky that way, but at the same time, like, I just, I don't care. Like I am who I am. I am what I believe in. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's funny, like even the, the name of the new group, right? The idea, every scar has a story. Like when you look at who a person is today, it's all made up of, of the good, the bad and the in-between. And, you know, one of the things that, that I've always suffered with is regret. I, I, I definitely, I've done a lot of things in my life that I regret and I really suffer with regret. But a few years ago, and it's actually probably more than a few, a dozen years ago, what I realized or 10 years ago was all the amazing things I have today, they don't exist in a vacuum. Like if I didn't go through those shitty things, I wouldn't have the kids I have. I wouldn't have my wife. I wouldn't have the friends I have. And as painful as those things are, it's brought me a lot of like amazing things. And that doesn't mean... I don't reflect back on being sexually abused and wish it never happened. Of course. But I've also learned to go, you know what? I wouldn't be the person I am today and have all these amazing people and things around me if I didn't go through that shit. So, you know, whether it's professional life or personal life, you know, you just, you have to, you know, be comfortable, you know, kind of representing who you are and, and know that some people are, are, going to be you know against it and not and have problems with it and you know just like i said earlier you know with the hardy christians like the take of like hey if you don't like it too fucking bad like it's me and it's my life it's the way i look at this other stuff too it doesn't mean i don't always, i won't sometimes give context to it so people kind of understand what brought it about 
but I'm not going to be apologetic um, because it's just, I've, I've lived enough in regret to know that that doesn't change anything. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, uh, you know, last thing is the fact that, you know, you have been, you know, especially with the, the new project as well. Um, the, you know, you're, you're still connected to music. You're still could, like you said, you know, connected to hardcore, connected to punk. Um, you know, whereas most people, you know, they age out, like they either go to less shows for obvious reasons in regards to personal obligations and stuff like that. Um, but you know, there, there's always still an opportunity to be connected with it. Uh, and obviously it's still something you're passionate about and getting your art out there. Um, it, this may be just like a real base question, but it's like, you know, why do you, why do you still care? I know the uh, sort of obvious answer of the, you know, the foundational aspect of you, uh, and you know, who you are as a person. Um, but you know, kind of like, w- why do you still care, Rob? You have, you clearly can move on from this, but you're not going to. Yeah. I mean, look, I think I, you know, I've had the opportunity over, or over different times over the last few years, uh, even the last 10 years to go and, and do a bunch of different projects with people like musical projects. And it's never happens, not because the music and things they send me aren't amazing. Uh, even Tom, like how I met Tom, you know, we played a few shows together in 108 over the years. And at one point he sent me like this four song demo that he had done, like really heavy, aggressive demo. And I fucking loved it. And he was like, yeah, you should sing on it. And I fucking loved it. But the thing was that in my life, I was in a pretty good spot in that, you know, I don't know, like I, 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 I wasn't struggling with, with anxiety or, or, or sadness or these different things. And ultimately I just went back to him and said, Hey, I fucking love these songs, but like, I'm not in a place to write them. Like I just, I, I don't. Right. And, and so if you would have asked me in February, Hey, are you going to do a new band? Are you going to you know, do a new record, a new band? I would have been like, no, like, no. Right. But what happened was like, you know, just a culmination of, of everything with, with COVID-19 and just the ongoing, especially like political unrest um, and social unrest in our country. And this is before George Floyd, but fuck, that's just the latest chapter in the same fucking bullshit story. Right. And so like all of a sudden I was feeling like this, these anxieties and this, this thing. And and that's when I, I can write like, that's again, I'm not like an artist. I'm not like a, a fucking songwriter. Like, but he, he happened to post like a 20 second thing on his Facebook page of like, Hey, I'm, I'm working on this new thing in quarantine. And I sent him a note. I was like, Hey, if you don't have me to sing on that, I'd love to try it. And I think at first he was like, Ooh, I don't know. It's going to be different. Um, but then, you know, three weeks later we had finished the record. And so I think for me, like I will always be indebted to punk rock to that scene. Like it, it's given to me way more than I could ever give back. I would not be alive and I'm not trying to be dramatic, but I would not be alive today if it wasn't for that. And, you know, I, I believe that that music is a powerful way to express yourself. But it's also a powerful way to share ideas. And so, you know, when I, when I do a record or I do something, it's because like I'm in a spot where, I feel like I need to express something and this is the comfortable way for me to do it. This is the way that I just, I, I feel like I can, I can express myself in a, in a holistic way. So, I mean, that's why I did a record, but you know, why do I care about punk rock still all that? Because I wouldn't be here without it. 
And I, I recognize that. And it's funny because like, you know, over the years, I mean, I've been, I've been involved in the punk scene now for God, 33 years. Uh, actually, no, sorry. 35 years. Um, I've met the best people in the world from that scene. Um, and there are people who even like, I necessarily didn't get along with or like, but I've been able to see them do some pretty incredible things and I'm happy for them. I want to see them be successful because we all tended to come from spots that were less than ideal. And so I think it's really cool to be able to see people who, who might not have, you know, the best, the best home life, who might not have resources, but they've got this ability to go into this scene where they can express themselves unapologetically. They can communicate and share with other people, disagree, yet there's still like this, this bond together. I mean, it was fun. Like I remember like uh, on that, on that first shelter 108 tour, I remember we, we, we crisscrossed the country. It was a five month tour. And so we play, and we played with every band you could think of at the time. Right. We, I, you know, but I remember like particularly like one show we played in Denver and or, or in Colorado somewhere. And this band, not for the lack of trying played, which was like three of the guys from Dan downcast. And then I think her name was Leslie. She was like a writer for heart attack. Fancy. And so, you know, on the outside, you look at that and go, well, fuck, that's going to be an interesting show, right? You got, you got the, you know, the ebullition bands and people, heart attack people and, and a Krishna band. And I remember when we got to the club, you know, I knew the guys from downcast and I knew Leslie some, and, you know, we had played together with resurrection. I had stayed with them, stuff like that, but we all went out to eat together. And I remember like watching kids faces when they would walk into this vegetarian restaurant and they saw me sitting with the people from Downcast and, you know, Leslie from Heart Attack. And you could tell, like, they were just like, I think that was Leslie, maybe it was Sophie. I can't remember her name exactly. But anyway, I, you could see on their face, like, they were just conflicted of like, wait, what the fuck is going on here? Sure. Right. It, you know, and, but, but what they didn't understand is that, like, yeah, like, you thought differently about things. You might have disagreed on things. But the things that bound you together, the things that brought you to, the scene in general, like was more powerful than maybe, you know, those other, those other elements of disagreement. And, you know, it was, you know, I, same thing. Like I remember, I remember at one point two two guys and I won't say who they are, but two guys from like, that were involved in the whole Krishna scene, you know, we, we played a show, resurrection played a show with like born against and that was in one away at the time, but one away, it was like born against and resurrection in Philly. And I remember like these two guys came up and you know, one, I'll just say one was from shelter and one was from another Krishna band. And they were like, they were just like, wait a minute, why are you talking to the guy from born again? You know, Adam, I've known Adam. I knew Adam at that time for quite a long time. Like him and I were hanging out and they just were so just like, wait a minute, I don't understand. Like that's the guy from born against. And it's like, dude, like what? Yeah, just, what? it was so? so weird. Like that, like, I just don't take it like that. And like, you know, here's a guy who I had way more in common with than I had maybe disagreements with. And the world still fucking, you know, still, still revolves in spite of the fact that you might have disagreements. And so I've always really like, liked that about the punk scene and that, you know, again, you're going to be surrounded by people who you probably have some things in common with. Um, but you're going to have these people from different cultures that have different ideas where you can vehemently disagree, but 
it doesn't turn into some like fucking, you know, blood packed bullshit. Like, you know, it is what it is. And you find ways to, you know, to sometimes, you know, disagree. Um, but not, you know, it, it wasn't such a hang up. And that's, I, I think that's the thing that I wish the entire world could fucking learn because like at this point now, like you're either quote unquote right or you're quote unquote left. And if, if you're on opposing sides no one will fucking talk to each other and it is going to be the absolute detriment of our society. For sure. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get that. And yeah, just the connective tissue that you're able to, you know, pull through and, and, uh, you know, keep you connected is something that, uh, you know, not everybody does, but like when you do it, you're just like, well, yeah, there's no, there's no other way. Like I'm never not going to be involved because of all of the reasons that you just listed. So yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. And it's, I mean, like it's, it's, it's really shocking. I will say it, 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 it's still like, and I don't know why I'm shocked. Um, when you see people who are so supportive now in their older years of this inherently flawed and stacked system, it's, it, 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 it does blow my fucking mind how many people grew up in that scene that now are supportive of this shit. And I, I can't, I can't, I can't really fathom it. Um, not that I expect that we're all going to agree on everything, but how many of them that have just gone to be like, Hey, like there's no systemic racism and, ah, you know, the sexism shit's overplayed. Like, I'm just like, are you fucking kidding me? Um, so there is that side of it too, where I definitely have felt let down by, by how some people have kind of evolved, but I, I will always be appreciative that, you know, you, you get to grow up in, and, you know, again, like if you grow up going to rock concerts and, and I'm an expert here, but I don't know that you get the same kind of peak at, at divergent opinions and feelings about social and political things that will have a huge impact on you later in life. And rock's very unique in that way. There you have it. That was Rob Fish. Thank you very much, Rob. And thank you to his publicist, Alexa, for bringing the idea to me. And I was like, I've always wanted to have Rob on. So let's do this officially rather than me just, uh, you know, punishing him over uh, Instagram uh, direct message. (laughs) But uh, anyways, next week is a special one because it is the eight year anniversary of this particular podcast. I've been doing it for over eight years and it's, it's just incredible to say that. And I have, uh, you know, one of my heroes musically on the show, Steve Von Till from Neurosis, who just recently put out a solo record and put out a collection of poetry. Really, really compelling dude. I've loved his music for many, many years, and he was an unbelievable chat. So that's what we got next week. I had to celebrate in a big way and have a person who is uh, foundational in me getting into, uh, you know, whatever, metal exploratory music it's just neurosis is such a unbelievable band so that's what we got next week and until then please be safe everybody the show is sponsored by BetterHelp. trust me in saying that no matter who you are mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all of the difference that's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. 
It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.